can you hear me? <clears throat> Hi. So I was browsing horror games on Steam, looking for a topic for a Halloween special that is now a few weeks late, when I came across something that looked a little out of place. The thumbnail featured a bunch of cute anime girls on a hot pink background, but the tags insisted it was the horror game of the week. Curious, I checked out the game's description. The game was titled Doki Doki Literature Club, and appeared to be your typical visual novel. Now, I've heard of horror-themed visual novels before, but there was nothing in the description that hinted at a darker story, except for this one little disclaimer at the very bottom. It read, This game is not suitable for children or those who are easily disturbed. So I played it. And the disclaimer was not wrong. Now, I'm not usually one to worry about spoilers, but this is one of those few games where I think it really is best to go in blind. So much of the experience is built around subverting your expectations. So if you have any interest in visual novels and appreciate a good twist, you should play this game right now. It's free. It takes five hours to complete. Less if you're a fast reader. And if you're as cowardly as I am, yes, there are jump scares. But they're rather tame as far as jump scares go. They're more startling than terrifying, and they almost always come about as a result of you progressing through the story so they're easy to see coming. I think you'll find that Doki Doki Literature Club is not just a terrifying horror game, but also a clever deconstruction of the romantic visual novel genre, and a compelling piece of metafiction in its own right. But before I get in too deep, let me define some terms. Doki Doki Literature Club was released on September 22nd, 2017, and created by Team Salvato, the head of Team Salvato, Dan Salvato, wrote and directed the game, with artist Satchley providing the character art and Velenquent the backgrounds. The game appears like any other game in the visual novel genre, and that is key to understanding its horror. Visual novels originated in Japan and are novel-length stories that incorporate both images and sound. They're broadly considered video games because of their interactive nature, but the degree of interaction differs from game to game. Typically, interaction is limited to clicking to progress through dialogue, though many visual novels implement branching story paths based on player choice. Some games combine the visual novel formula with actual gameplay scenarios, such as the puzzles of the Ace Attorney and Zero Escape franchises. There are many genres of visual novels, but one of the most infamous is the so-called dating sim. As the name implies, dating sims are a type of visual novel that focus on romance. There is actually a technical distinction between romantic visual novels and dating sims, but for the purpose of this analysis, I'm going to use the term broadly to refer to any visual novel whose plot utilizes certain genre tropes, regardless of what the mechanics are. Your typical dating sim setup puts you in the shoes of a generic teenage boy thrust into a situation where he is surrounded by a number of attractive girls. Typically, you have the option to pursue one or all of these girls with the goal of eventually becoming romantically involved with one of them. In terms of content, dating sims can run the gamut between sweet romance to outright pornography, creating something of a stigma around them. Nevertheless, they have become increasingly popular in the West over the past few years, with Western-made visual novels appearing in greater numbers. 
This has led to a number of interesting innovations in the genre, partic particularly in the area of diversity. Examples include Katawa Shoujo, a visual novel where the potential love interests are all physically disabled, and the recent Dream Daddy, where the love interests are all attractive single fathers. There have also been a few parodies of the genre, as in the case of Hatoful Boyfriend, a Japanese dating sim featuring a cast of very lovable pigeons. My experience with the dating sim genre outside of these popular examples is limited, so I can't say for sure that Doki Doki Literature Club is the first game to inject horror into the genre, but it's the first I've heard of to do so, and, and to pull it off so well. The closest comparison I can make is to the Higurashi series of visual novels, which begin with a similar boy-meets-lots-of-pretty-girls setup, but quickly devolves into a bloodbath. But in that case, the genre is made clear from the beginning, and is told like a typical horror story. Doki Doki Literature Club is different. It does little to announce itself as horror, and when it does, it's not through typical horror tropes, but by subverting your expectations. Before I get into how Doki Doki Literature Club deconstructs the dating sim genre, let me provide a hopefully brief synopsis for those who haven't played it, and for those who need a little refresher. If you like to skip ahead, there is a timestamp in the description, and you can go to that. Doki Doki Literature Club puts you into the role of a player character that you get to name yourself. The story begins with the player character being convinced to join the school's newly formed literature club by his childhood friend, the happy-go-lucky Sayori. The player character is reluctant at first, being more into anime than reading, but changes his mind after discovering that the literature club is filled exclusively with cute girls. The fiery and petite Natsuki, the quiet and mysterious Yuri, and the club's cool and responsible president, Monica. It's quickly decided that the club's main activity will be to write poems every day and share them with the other members. The player character has no interest in poetry, but decides that this is a perfect opportunity to gain the affection of one of the girls. The next three days follow the same routine. Each night you compose a poem that will appeal to a particular girl. Composing a poem consists of a short interactive section in which you choose 20 words from a randomized series of lists. Stickers depicting cute versions of the club's members hop around the lower left part of the screen. When you pick a word that appeals to a particular girl, that girl sticker will bounce with joy. Sayori likes bittersweet words that relate directly to happiness or sadness. Natsuki loves simple, cute words. And Yuri likes long, complicated words with ominous connotations. Noticeably, Monica is not able to be appealed to, indicating that she is not a viable love interest. Every day, the player character will share a brief, intimate moment with the girl his poem has targeted before everybody in the club swaps poems. Between the little interactions and the poems they share, we are given quite a bit of characterization for each girl. Natsuki prefers manga to novels, uses sarcasm to hide her emotions, poorly, and prefers poems that are pretty, straightforward, and make a larger point. Yuri is socially awkward, enjoys reading complex novels with dark plots, and prefers poems that are full of symbolism. Sayori's poems start off sweet and simple, but become slowly more complex and bittersweet as the days progress. Monica's poems are... off, somehow, depicting feelings of being trapped or out of place. Unlike the others, Monica is unwilling to share exactly what her poems mean, but freely gives the player advice regarding writing and interacting with other characters, even reminding the player to save their game often. Monica's interactions paint her as your typical tutorial character, one whose purpose is to provide the player hints as to how to navigate the game and, in this case, woo the girl of their choice. 
This is perhaps why she is not considered a viable love interest in the confines of the game. On the third day, the club begins preparations for the upcoming school festival, a common plot element in these kinds of games, where they hope to attract new members. Each member is given a task, and the player is given the choice of helping either Natsuki or Yuri. Over the weekend, the player character begins to worry about his childhood friend Sayori, who had begun to act uncharacteristically withdrawn over the past couple of days. After the player character visits her at home, Sayori makes a confession. She has struggled with clinical depression her entire life, and seeing the player character grow close to the other girls has made her depression worsen. The player character gives Sayori a generic but earnest affirmation, promising to always be there for her no matter what. Then, in a jarring shift of tone, he simply returns home and works on festival preparations with either Natsuki or Yuri, sharing one last intimate moment in the process. At the end of the day, the player character is confronted again by Sayori, who finally confesses what she's truly feeling. She's suffering a great deal of pain and guilt because she's in love with him, and her depression prevents her from believing that she could or should be loved back. At this point, you're given a choice. Tell Sayori that you love her, or tell her that you want to keep things the way they are and stay friends. Regardless of your choice, Sayori will fail to show up the next morning, and the player character will walk to school alone. Once there, Monica will lightly chide the player for leaving Sayori hanging before showing him a horrifying poem that she submitted to be read the night before. The player character runs to Sayori's house and, fearing the worst, heads up to her bedroom. When he opens the door, he finds Sayori's dead body hanging from a noose. The player character will lament their choices, whatever they were, and wish that he could start over and spend more time with her before the game abruptly ends. But there is something mysterious about Sayori's death, aside from its abrupt nature. For the duration of a screen, the background cuts out, and the words, an exception has occurred, appears above Sayori's head, followed by a snippet of programming code and the phrase, see traceback.txt for details. If you exit the game and look at the game's data folder at this point, you can find the mentioned text file, which contains a bunch of command line gibberish and, oddly enough, a line of dialogue from an unnamed character, mentioning screwing something up, deletion, and ending with a somewhat familiar laugh. Regardless of whether you view this file, the player character's final words are clear. You have to restore an earlier save and make different choices. After all, that's what you do in a game with branching paths. You try different routes until you get the ending you want. Except when you return to the title menu, something is wrong. Whereas the title screen usually depicts the four lead girls on a pink background, now only three of the girls are depicted, and the space that is normally occupied by Sayori is now a garbled mess of elements from the other girls' character models. The new game option is similarly garbled, displaying meaningless characters. Attempting to load a saved game at this point brings up the message, File Error, Characters slash Sayori.chr. The file is missing or corrupt. Starting a new game will begin the story as before, only this time without Sayori. On top of that, the game appears to be plagued by strange glitches. Character portraits stutter and blink out. Text boxes display lines and lines of gibberish and it only gets worse as the game goes on. This is where the game reveals its true nature. Every screen you progress through brings with it the potential for something frightening. Some scares are scripted, while others are completely random, meaning you never know what to expect. 
Certain messages will appear in the game's files as well, containing scary images or hidden messages that hint at what's going on. On top of the weird glitches, the characters begin to act erratically as well, especially Yuri, who becomes more and more possessive of the player character, even becoming aggressive towards the other girls. The girls begin to swear at each other, lose memories, and reveal darker aspects of their personalities. The chaos culminates in a scene where Yuri confesses her violent love to the player character, and you are given a choice to either accept her feelings or turn her down. Either response will cause Yuri to pull out a knife and stab herself to death in front of the player. We are then forced to watch Yuri's body slowly decompose over the course of a weekend, while the text box spews an endless stream of gibberish. By using the dialogue skip button, we see the weekend through, and Natsuki enters. Seeing Yuri's body, she vomits and flees the room as Monica comes in and calmly apologizes to the player. It's at this point where the truth is revealed. Monica is the one behind everything. She knows that she is in a video game, and she's learned to manipulate the source code. After deleting both Natsuki and Yuri's character files, Monica restarts the game. When it comes back, the only thing left is a still image of Monica sitting in an empty classroom, looking directly at the player, as an infinite void stretches past the windows behind her. Monica reveals that she caused Sayori's suicide through a combination of bad advice and manipulation of code, and that the other girl's erratic behavior was a result of her meddling with the code as well. She even tells you how she deleted the other characters in great detail. It turns out that she was desperate to be alone with the player, the real player, not the player character, after realizing that nothing in her world was real, but the game prevented her from doing so because of her being a tutorial character. She declares her love for you, you, the player, and hopes that you will be able to spend the rest of your lives together. At this point, you can choose to leave her alone, and Monica will chat with the player every couple of minutes on a variety of topics. In fact, she has so many topics of conversation, you'll almost swear she's really thinking up new things to say. If you feel pity for her, you can leave her like this, or take one of her suggestions and save her character data to a flash drive to wear around your neck forever and always. But, if you want to see things through to the end, you can delete Monica's character files from the game's data. The game will break once more, and Monica will scream at you for betraying her. After a moment of reflection, however, Monica realizes that destroying the game may not have been the right thing to do, and that true love means denying your own happiness sometimes. She then reveals that she kept backups of the other girls out of a sense of friendship, and wishes the player goodbye. The game restarts once again with Sayori on the title screen, but no Monica. Starting a new game will start the story from the beginning, only Sayori is the club president and Monica is nowhere to be found. We are reintroduced to Yuri and Natsuki, and the game appears to be continuing as normal, until Sayori pulls you aside and confesses that she remembers everything. It turns out, now that she is president, Sayori has the same powers of self-awareness that Monica had, and she remembers how the player got rid of her. She begins to talk about how great it will be with the player forever when a text box appears, chastising Sayori even as she begins to glitch and scramble. Monica still lives on in some form, and she declares that there is no happiness here, before shutting down the game completely. In one last turn, we hear Monica talk to us in the only bit of voice dialogue in the entire game about a song she's been practicing on the piano. She then proceeds to sing as the credits begin to roll. The game ends with an error message, and any attempt to reopen the game brings you to the same message.
So that's what happens. And trust me, experiencing it firsthand is the best way to really appreciate it. The game plays with your expectations so well, and it sticks and it sticks with you long after you've played it. But I don't want to simply talk about how scary or exciting it is to play. I want to examine how it produces the effect it does, and why it's such a big deal. There have been plenty of visual novels, especially in recent years, that parody or play with the game's tropes. But never before have I seen a game that so thoroughly and effectively deconstructs the visual novel. A large part of this game's effectiveness lies in its ability to use the game's most well-known tropes to set and defy our expectations. Dating sims are typically created to provoke a certain set of emotions in a player. These games offer a sense of intimacy by providing players with an idealized relationship. Idealized in the sense of being unrealistic, rather than healthy. The women in these games are perfect, beautiful, kind, perhaps secretly so, and always ready to forgive the player. They may possess flaws, but nothing that would render them unlikable, and they will always, always fall in love with the player character, no matter how sleazy and unlikable they actually are. Player characters are blank slates, often literally faceless, meant only to provide an avatar for the player. They are given limited personality and respond to most situations with a predictable, easygoing attitude. No matter how shamelessly they pursue the women they are interested in, they are never perceived as creepy by the other characters. Doki Doki Literature Club fulfills all of these tropes, putting us into the shoes of an altogether uninteresting character surrounded by women who are inexplicably attracted to him. The overall tone is a pleasing, romantic atmosphere with few, if any, of the harsh realities of the world. This is why Sayori's depression is so jarring. It changes the tone of the game completely. What started out as a pleasant fantasy is suddenly darkened by a dose of heavy reality. What makes it even more affecting is just how real it feels. I've known people in my life who suffer from clinical depression, and the things Sayori says to the player character are eerily similar to things I've heard in real life. Feelings of not being good enough, of not deserving happiness. Feelings of guilt for being loved or cared for by another person are real symptoms of depression. So when Sayori expresses these things to the player, the illusion is broken and we are forced to face reality where we least expected it. I'd like to take this moment to compliment Dan Salvato and his portrayal of mental illness in this game. It's not an easy subject to broach, and in a work like this, it could easily come across as exploitative. But I feel that Dan did a good job of portraying real-life pain. If you suffer from depression yourself, you may not believe me, but you're not alone, no matter what the voice in your head tells you. I hope this game is proof enough of that. Now, Sayori's depression is only the turning point. In the second half of the game, when things start to break down, the other characters begin revealing facets of their true selves that were not apparent the first time through. For example, we learn that Natsuki is a victim of abuse. We are given hints that Natsuki's father is strict on our first playthrough. Natsuki mentions in passing that she has to hide her manga collection from her dad because she has no idea what he'd do to her if he found them. She claims that he would freak out if she brought a boy over to the house. And in a comment that is me only meaningful if you're looking for it, she claims that she has to take every opportunity to eat her father's dinners. But in the second playthrough, Natsuki states outright that her father would beat the out of her if he found her manga collection. 
and Monica reveals that Natsuki's father begrudges her food, refusing to let her snack or bring lunch money to school. Worst of all, she attributes Natsuki's petite size to malnourishment. It should be noted that this information comes about either from Monica's manipulation of the code or directly from her mouth. Monica confesses that she tried to make the girls unattractive to the player by playing up their dark sides. However, she also states in a game file that these girls were already broken and that she was simply showing them for what they were. Add to that the, the hints that were subtly laid out in the first playthrough before Monica's tampering and it's pretty safe to assume that these girls are truly broken. Yuri's problems are a little more overt. She reveals in one of her intimate moments that she has a fascination with knives. She talks a little about her collection, but her true relationship with the knives isn't revealed until the later game, when we walk in on her cutting herself in the hallway. She doesn't do it out of depression, but rather as a release, a way of feeling pleasure. She hints at this in the early game through a poem about a raccoon that, on first playthrough, seemed kind of meaningless. While this particular form of self-harm is unfamiliar to me, the practice of self-harm is a very real thing. Both Natsuki's malnourishment and Yuri's self-harm serve to put the lie to clichés that have defined these kinds of games. The petite, childlike girl is a common character design in anime, meant to appeal to a sense of desire that we're not that comfortable with here in the West. But by attributing these characteristics to malnourishment and child abuse, we're suddenly forced to re-examine ourselves as we contend with the revulsion of what was originally meant to be appealing. Similarly, Yuri embodies the shy, quiet, demure type, a cute girl whose attractiveness lies in her relatable social awkwardness and secretly passionate side. However, her inability to express her emotions properly drives her to find another outlet, which is something we're not as comfortable with. There are consequences to how we perceive ourselves, consequences we try to ignore in works such as these, but Doki Doki Literature Club brings these consequences to the forefront. Doki Doki Literature Club is all about consequences. It's sad, too, that these are the characteristics by which Monica attempts to steer the player away from the other girls. She believes that once the painful realities of depression, child abuse, and self-harm come to light, you, the real-life player, will not like those who suffer them. And she may not be wrong. It's hard caring for someone in their brokenness. And sometimes there can be no end to it. If you listened to Sayori's confession and thought, I don't want this, or I can't be responsible for this, then you've just gained some insight into yourself and the hardships of real people, by playing a video game, no less. To bring the point home, the game reminds us that depression is something outside of our control. The player character foolishly believes that he can cure Sayori of her depression if he only sticks around long enough. Ignoring the fact that he fails to take responsibility for her the very next morning, which just goes to show what a terrible person your avatar is supposed to be, your decisions up to this point do not change Sayori's actions. Whether you gave her all of your time and attention or ignored her throughout the course of the game, she still hangs herself in the end. Her fate is not yours to control. I think now would be a good time to stop talking about harsh realities and turn our attention back to fiction, because Doki Doki Literature Club is not just about reality, but how reality influences and affects our relationship to fiction. Doki Doki Literature Club has two layers of fiction. The fiction of the literature club itself, and the metafiction surrounding Monica and her goals. Metafiction is any sort of story that acknowledges its own fictitiousness, 
Anytime a character winks at the camera, or an author writes himself into his own story, or a video game character points at his headband and boasts about his infinite ammo, that's metafiction. And metafiction is Metafiction relies on pointing out the relationship between the audience and the story being told, which means that metafiction is a little different for each medium. Films such as Deadpool directly acknowledge the audience watching them. Novels like the Thursday Next series play with the language and syntax, acknowledging things like footnotes and unnecessary commas as part of the story. Video games have a very unique way of relating to their audience, because the audience is not just a spectator, but a participant. Players interact with games by mechanically manipulating an avatar or in-game character, and navigating abstract menu systems. Video games immerse us in the fiction of their worlds far more intimately than other media, meaning that we are more susceptible to that fiction being broken. Doki Doki Literature Club uses this breaking of fiction to scare us, and it does so very effectively. The game is smart enough to have us get immersed in the world of the games before it pulls the rug out from under us. Of its roughly five-hour runtime, the first three play out like any other visual novel. It isn't until the game is mostly through that the horror elements come out. By that time, we are immersed in our role as the player character, and may have even begun to see the girls of the literature club as actual people. After the big twist, the game begins to act up, but none of the characters in the game acknowledge this strange going-ons, not even the player character, who becomes practically non-existent by the time the game is through. The scares are done completely for the benefit of the player. But the game doesn't simply break your sense of reality by acting up. It forces you to see the game as just a game, by sending you digging into the game's source files. The mysterious message that pops up during Sayori's death scene is the first overt acknowledgement of the subversion at play, and anyone curious enough to follow up on it find themselves dist distanced from the fiction of the game, even as they are drawn deeper into the meta-fiction. As the game progresses through its second half, more messages appear periodically inside the game's data, pointing to a larger narrative. At the same time, the messages create a new story for us, one that exists concurrent to and yet outside of the game's premise. The game doesn't just acknowledge its own medium, but the player as well. It becomes increasingly obvious as the game falls apart that Monica is somehow different from the rest. It should come as no surprise then when Monica reveals what is really going on and addresses you directly. The endgame scenario sees you face to face with Monica, all other characters gone, and all pretense of fiction thrown out the window and into the void. The player character, long since struck mute by the things happening in game, no longer exists, which is confirmed by Monica's opening statement. Monica instead turns her attention to you, the player, and even calls you by your real name, using your computer's data in a trick that has become common in indie games as of late. She makes it clear that you're no longer hiding behind some avatar. At this point, the metafiction has subsumed the fiction of the game. The game is not the story of a boy in a club full of cute girls, but one of a self-aware character desperate for attention from someone real. The game uses metafiction, acknowledging the game's nature as a game and pulling the player into the narrative itself in order not only to unnerve you, but to immerse you in a way that a more straightforward story could not. As I said, Doki Doki Literature Club uses metafiction not only to scare us, but to provide us with a deeper story than its simple premise would imply. The star of this story is Monica. She has her own character and backstory in the world of the Literature Club, but it's her relationship to the player and the game itself that defines her. Monica, despite her terrifying actions and sociopathic behavior, is a truly pitiable character. 
Her defining feature is her own self-awareness, her knowledge that she and everyone around her are simply characters in a video game created to appeal to a target demographic of lonely men in a bigger, real world. Think about how terrifying that must be, to recognize one's own insignificance. We humans have similar fears and doubts that plague us, some more than others. But what would it be like to know for a fact that your life was meaningless? What is my purpose? You pass butter. Oh my god. Yeah, welcome to the club, pal. Just to drive the point home, there is an Easter egg in the game. If you install a fresh copy of Doki Doki Literature Club and delete Monica's character file before starting a new game, you will be treated to a scene in which Sayori stares out at the player before breaking down into hysterics, crying, this can't be it, before the game crashes. Attempting to open the game after this will reveal an image of Sayori hanging from a noose over a background of static. The implication, of course, is that with Monica gone, the title of club president passed on to Sayori, and with it, self-awareness. Upon launching the game, Sayori is confronted with the truth of her limited reality, and, rather than going on, decides to kill herself and everyone in the game. It says a lot about Monica's strength of character that she doesn't take a similar course of action when faced with the cosmic horror of her own insignificance. Monica even states that the only thing keeping her from killing herself is her desire for something real, namely you, the player. With this in mind, Monica can easily be seen as a victim, which would then make the villain of the game Dan Salvato, because, honestly, who creates a video game character with this kind of self-awareness? However, her sad position does not make her actions within the confines of the game any less evil. She drives two people to kill themselves in horrific fashion, two people she considered friends. One of them is a clinically depressed girl she talks into taking her own life, which is just about the most monstrous thing that anyone could do. She tries to justify these horrific actions by claiming that Sayori, Natsuki, and Yuri are simply video game characters, and therefore don't matter. The sad irony, of course, is that Monica herself is a video game character, but she believes herself to be superior to her fellow characters because of her self-awareness. She actively dehumanizes her friends in order to justify their murders, which, ironically, makes her more human than we'd like to admit. How many times have you thought yourself superior to someone else based on your knowledge and abilities? How many times has history seen this mindset play out? Monica then tries to convince the player that she is in fact real, or at least more real than her friends, and she does a pretty good job. If you don't delete her and simply leave her alone in her classroom, she will talk every few min minutes about anything and everything. Sometimes she'll comment on the game itself and provide insight into the story, but other times she'll talk about mundane, real-world subjects, like the state of the American education system, and the benefits of becoming vegetarian, or the importance of sleep. But then she'll launch into a detailed description of Sayori's death and how she attempted to claw her way out of her noose after her survival instinct kicked in, which is how her hands ended up all bloody. Bet you didn't catch that little detail on your first playthrough. So, within the fiction inside the fiction... fiction, Monica is undoubtedly a monster. Of course, Monica is still just a character whose dialogue and actions were scripted ahead of time by Dan Salvato and not some kind of AI, something she acknowledges herself just to add to the weirdness. But the illusion is done well and serves a brilliant purpose, because Monica is also a reflection of the player themselves. You see, by declaring yourself real, while those around her are simply characters, 
Monica has effectively turned herself into a player herself. Her motivations are the same as the average dating sim player. She wants to escape from the pain of her own life and find a little bit of real emotion in a world she doesn't belong. By approaching the world as simply a game, Monica has given herself the right to play with characters' emotions without consequence, just as we do. How many players finish one route of a game, achieving happiness for those characters, only to go back and replay a different route, effectively rewriting that other ending? Another great example of this is Undertale, which has plenty of videos about it already, and so it doesn't need anything added here. The true horror of Doki Doki Literature Club is that it faces us with a character that acts a lot like us. A character who wants to fall in love with you as much as you want to fall in love with it, and is equally callous in how it attempts to get there. In this way, Doki Doki Literature Club subverts the entire dating sim genre by giving us exactly what we want, a character that will love us back. Metafiction is all about calling attention to our relationship with a work in order to make us re-examine how and why we relate to that work. Doki Doki Literature Club makes us consider why people are attracted to dating sims in the first place, and more broadly, why we relate to fictional characters the way we do. During one of her conversations, Monica asks the player why people love the unrealistic personalities found in dating sims. After all, there aren't really girls who get pouty and cute when they don't get their way, as Natsuki does. And Yuri would be considered non-functional in reality. It's like you're siphoning out all the components of a character that makes them feel human and leaving just the cute stuff, she says. It's concentrated cuteness with no actual substance. In an interview with Kotaku, Dan Salvato has said that Doki Doki Literature Club came out of a love-hate relationship with the kinds of tropes found in dating sims. These feelings are understandable. After all, dating sims provide players with a romantic world where they can be loved unconditionally, but they can become a means of escaping reality and provide harmful views of women in the process. So does that mean that dating sims are inherently a bad thing? Dan Salvato seems to come up with something of an answer by the end of the game. If you manage to play through every route during the first half of the game, experiencing all the intimate moments between you and the girls before completing the second half, then you unlock a secret ending in which, rather than thanking you for deleting Monica, Sayori thanks you for caring about everyone in the club and treats you to a special handwritten message from Dan Salvato himself. This message is one of my favorite thank you notes from a developer ever, and I highly recommend seeking it out. But here's a brief snippet. Everyone likes different kinds of games. People who enjoy dating sims may have a heightened empathy for fictional characters, or they might be experiencing feelings that life has not been kind enough to offer them. If they are enjoying themselves, then that's all that matters. Dan suggests that dating sims have their place, that maybe we need a little fantasy sometimes. Though it can, like many things, become a problem if we choose to replace our reality with a fantasy, as Monica replaces her reality with a fantasy of her own. I also find it interesting how he mentions heightened empathy for fictional characters, because that raises the question of why we relate to fictional characters not just in romance, but in fiction more broadly. We've been telling stories about people who never existed since the dawn of time. Not only that, but we empathize with them, feel fear and sorrow on their behalf. The purpose of this voyeuristic practice has long been understood to be experienced catharsis, or an outpouring of our own emotions. But what comes out of a catharsis is unclear. One might argue that the purpose of a 
of catharsis is to help us understand other people's emotions, to empathize with their feelings. But sometimes, we seem more ready to empathize with fictional characters than with real people. And what does that say about us? Doki Doki Literature Club brings up a lot of questions like these, but it's ultimately up to us to decide what we take away from it. The characters are simple archetypes, but their issues make us think about the real world and how to better care for the broken among us. And even though the events in the game are made up, they have an emotional impact. For example, I believe Monica's actions were monstrous and deserved redress. Furthermore, her obsession for a world outside her own was harmful to herself, and freeing her from that, her torment was the only merciful thing to do. Let's wrap this up with a final quote. In his thank you letter, Dan Salvato has this to say. For years, I have been enamored by the ability of visual novels, and games in general, to tell stories in ways not possible using traditional media. Doki Doki Literature Club is my love letter to that. Dan Salvato believes in the potential of video games to be more than simple entertainment, and he provided a wonderful, if small, example of what video games can be. It's games like these that remind me why I love video games so much to begin with, and why I'm willing to talk for over 40 minutes and publish it as a podcast. Thank you, Dan Salvato, for making this game, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this in-depth look at Doki Doki Literature Club. Hi, it's me. Um, so you know how I've been, like, practicing piano and stuff? And not really any good at it yet, like, at all. But I wrote you a song, and I was kind of hoping that I could show it to you, because I worked really, really hard on it. So, yeah. Just to find that special day.